today on EdgeFX. Wow, look at all this cool regenerative agriculture going on in the indigenous community. Wow, look at all this amazing regenerative agriculture going on throughout the black diaspora. Oh my goodness, look at all these cool Mexican-American home gardens and all these amazing farms and polycultures and wow, like Asian-American, you know, regenerative traditions inform the whole organic movement. And, and then it's like, oh, and everybody we just met, all the people in all those communities, they own 2% of the agricultural land in the United States. Ben Giuliano speaks with Liz Carlisle, author of Lentil Underground and Grain by Grain, a quest to revive ancient wheat, rural jobs, and healthy food, and an assistant professor of environmental studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara, where she teaches courses on food and farming. They talk about Dr. Carlisle's newest book, Healing Grounds, Climate, Justice, and the Deep Roots of Regenerative Farming. Hi, Liz. Welcome. Thanks for being with us on the podcast today. I want to start just by giving you a chance to introduce yourself and who you are and what you do. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me, Ben. I'm delighted to be here and in such great company with, with all of your podcast guests and, and all of you working on this EdgeFX project. And I'm Liz Carlisle. I teach in the Environmental Studies Program at UC Santa Barbara, and I'm deeply interested in a more just and sustainable food system. And for the past dozen years or so, I've gotten to interview a lot of really brilliant uh, farmers and advocates and activists working towards that more just and sustainable food system. And I've written three narrative books, um, you know, trying to uplift that work. And I've also gotten to work in some really cool teams with, you know, a whole range of social scientists and soil scientists and people who do bird surveys, doing projects really looking at agroecological transition. Awesome. And as you mentioned, you've written three books on this theme now. You have a very storied career in this field of agroecology and sustainable food systems. But how did you first become interested in this or start getting involved in this world for your life's work? Yeah, that's always a good question. And I find that the answer gets deeper. Um, you know, the longer I'm in this work and the more I reflect on what the origin point is. Because I, I think the real origin point for me is my grandmother, who lost our family farm in the Dust Bowl. She was born and raised in western Nebraska on a family farm, kind of recently homesteaded farm. And she was a super influential person in my life and somebody I admired a great deal. And I loved, uh, she had this land connection that she sustained throughout her life. And it seemed to me that it gave her this kind of wisdom and this groundedness about being alive. And that was something I really wanted in my life, in addition to just loving being outdoors like my grandma did. But she also was really honest with me about the experience of the Dust Bowl itself and that tragedy of, you know, her family losing their home and their livelihood and kind of their whole world disintegrating. She ended up having to go and live with another family and sort of help out with household chores to, you know, be able to go to high school and kind of keep going in life. And, you know, she told me that she understood that her her father had plowed too much and, and too hard and used too heavy implements and that that had happened on farms kind of all over their community. And she was really interested in how do we take better care of the land, basically. And so that's kind of planted a seed for me ever since those conversations with my grandmother. You know, and I always wanted to talk to other farmers and people who had those kinds of family backgrounds and traditions of land stewardship. And so, you know, one thing led to another. I ended up going to work for this amazing organic farmer from my home state of Montana, John Tester, when I was 24. And um, it was really through work in his office that I met kind of folks who had started the organic movement in Montana, um, who eventually became my collaborators on my dissertation project in graduate school. That also sort of a question I had about your background is, so you're, you're from Montana, correct? I'm from Montana, born and raised in Missoula. <laughs> so clearly, I, I mean, maybe you sort of already answered this, but how did growing up in that uh, setting, a sort of rural state, particularly inform your interests in agriculture? 
Yeah, I, I think it was huge. There was that understanding that, you know, my grandmother was my closest connections in terms of, in terms of family of having, um, you know, an agrarian life. Um, but going to Hellgate High School in Missoula, Montana, I was surrounded by that was the high school that people went to if you were coming in from surrounding rural areas for the most part. And so I was surrounded by people who, before they came to first period, had, you know, fed the cows. <laughs> um, it was a way of life that was all around me. And I was really interested in the stories of other people with a farming background. And I, you know, I just asked people about what, what it was like living that way. And I was really interested in these uh, values, you know, people's stewardship values and the kinds of stories that were passed down in families, because that seemed to get at something really, really deep about the meaning of life and the meaning of being human. And I also really loved country music when I was in high school. And, and that sort of was a red thread for me. I was, when I went to college in Massachusetts, I was playing country songs on this acoustic guitar that my dad had given me in the practice room in the basement. And it became a sort of um, a cultural form through which I could make sense of my own experience and who I was and where I came from. And so I started playing open mics and actually kind of had a career as a country singer starting in college. And then for a few years after that, you know, opening for people like Sugarland and Josh Turner and Travis Tritt and stuff like that. My main um, job description was to be sure I got off the stage within 25 minutes or whatever the allotted time period was. Um, but that experience sent me all over rural communities all over this country. And I was blown away by the people that I met and also by the parallels in their stories, that people had all these different personal stories about where their land stewardship connection came from in their family or, you know, in their own kind of understanding of the world. But they had a lot of similar stories about the barriers to being good land stewards. And it kept coming up again and again. You know, this is what farm policy encourages us to do. This is what farm policy makes it difficult to do, whether that's cover cropping, you know, or uh, growing a more diversified set of crops that at that time you still couldn't really get decent insurance for. And so I started to realize, oh, there's this really similar set of economic and political barriers that people are facing. And that's when, you know, this organic farmer from my home state, John Tester, ran for Senate and started talking about those very barriers and his vision for a green economy based on his own experience of converting his family farm to organic, living in this little tiny rural town, Big Sandy in Montana. And so it was really, you know, hearing from all those farmers that inspired me to think about, you know, what are the solutions to really empowering people to exercise these land stewardship traditions. Yeah, totally. I think the theme um, of storytelling is very con like apparent mm. and consistent in from, from being a country singer to now a writer and academic. And I think that's what makes your work so powerful is your ability to sort of weave together all of these disparate stories of ecology, but also values and history and you're, so I, I would say like broadly the work that you've published is in the category of like food and environment or agriculture and environment writing, but you, you really laser focus in on these human stories and these human dimensions of that relationship. And I'd love to hear you say a little bit more about why that is so important to you. Yeah, I think you've definitely, <laughs> you've captured, um, you know, why, how I came to this field and what it is about it that keeps gripping me again and again, which is these human stories. I came into agroecology as a person who really did love narrative and who was interested in hearing farmers talk about their stories. And so when I'm writing, I'm, I'm thinking about my own entry points and thinking about, you know, what are the stories that might resonate with other people and help them see themselves in this movement, help them find their own place. Because I think agroecology, there's, um, you know, all this incredible science, there's all this incredible ecology, there's so much to learn about, you know, how plants work and how soil works. But for me, at the end of the day, always at the heart of it is what are our values as a society? I, I find a lot of meaning in agroecological work that's really about who we want to be as people. And 
I think that's what's kept me coming back again and again and again over these dozen years. That's that's how agroecology is feeding me <laughs> something that I need. And so I love having conversations on that level with people who are involved in the farming and the science and then sharing those out and thinking about how we kind of develop this web of cultural stories, which I think for most of human history has it's just been how people live that that you know agriculture and land stewardship is so intertwined with life and you know food and music and i think um you know in this industrial agricultural era sometimes the stories get disconnected from the food production and so kind of weaving those things back together i think you know not only helps more people get involved and feel agency in the food system but kind of helps bring us back to these conversations about the values that we want to see at the center of it all. Yes, absolutely. And then the last sort of question I have about your process um, in writing is you you also are an academic. You're a professor at um, UC Santa Barbara, and you also write academic articles and academic journals in addition to books that tend to be more accessible for a general non-specialist audience. I'm curious about how you approach those different types of research and different types of writing. Yeah. For me, you know, writing journal articles or oftentimes working on big team projects that result in journal articles is definitely a really distinct process from working on books. And it's also really different language. And I'll I'll admit that I find it difficult to work on two projects like that simultaneously. I don't know if there's folks out there who are bilingual, um, <laughs> but it feels like a form of that. And um, I have an easier time, um, you know, sort of doing them in sequence so that when I'm thinking in the really um, precise and specialized language that goes with a journal article, that's kind of one brain space. And when I'm thinking in story, that's kind of another brain space because it's not just a different vocabulary. It's also kind of a different syntax, like a different order in which you move through thoughts in, in terms of sort of what people are expecting of the structure of a piece. Um, I found, but, you know, at the same time that those projects really inform each other. Uh, so my first experience of doing this was as a graduate student working on my dissertation project. And I was in Montana there were all these amazing organic farmers who I had met, started to get to know through my job in John Tester's office. And so I was trying to understand what they were doing with their farming systems. A really big part of that story was that it used to be monoculture grain and they were rotating in both legumes um, for cash crops and legumes with cover crops to replace synthetic nitrogen. So I was kind of trying to understand that, but I was also trying to understand the how did this social movement develop side of things is like, wow, there's thousands of acres of lentils, you know, this is a major crop. And, you know, just a decade or two ago, there were none. So how did that happen? And when I started thinking about, you know, how do I want to write about this? I realized that uh, a lot of what I had learned in interviews had been shared in the form of story. And it was really resonating with me, this kind of collection of characters <laughs> that I had gotten to know. And so I made the decision that I was going to write a book. I made this decision having like zero connections in the publishing industry or any kind of promise that anybody was going to publish it. But I wanted to, I wanted to do it and I wanted to try to publish it. And I decided to do that first. And then um, there's a very long editorial process with the book. So after I had submitted my first draft and it was with my editor and kind of making its way through that process, then I actually went back and I wrote three journal articles about my dissertation research that ultimately became the dissertation that I submitted for my PhD. And that was a chance to think in an entirely different part of my brain about kind of cross-cutting themes that had come up in my work that were resonant with things that I had read while I was a graduate student that had come up as concepts kind of within the research community. And so that was actually, I really enjoyed getting to think about it in those two different ways. And there was this way in which it kind of worked in terms of time management. <laughs> my book came out two days after I got my PhD conferred. So <laughs> it worked out to do the journal articles while I was kind of waiting on the editorial process. And I've done that with a few other projects too, where there's kind of one research process, but there are complementary writing pieces, some that are narrative and some that are journal articles. But then the other cool thing about research, you know, in journal article writing is uh, I've gotten to do these team projects 
where lots and lots of people are collaborating from different kinds of disciplinary angles. And so that's that's been a really fun part of the process too. And that's often how I learn a lot of the, especially stuff outside of my own special, you know, specializations that then inform the narrative writing. So I've become a lot more literate, for example, in soil science by working on team projects with soil scientists. Cool. So speaking of books and writing, let's get into Healing Grounds. I've got my copy here and I see yours um, in the back on display too. <laughs> so the title of the book is Healing Grounds, Climate Justice and the Deep Roots of Regenerative Farming. So I want to start with the question, what is regenerative farming or regenerative agriculture, which is perhaps a, a big question. And in particular, what does regenerative agriculture mean for different people? And then what does it mean for you um, in your use of the term in the title of the book? Yeah, that's a great question. I think regenerative is one of these big terms, not unlike sustainable, that's always going to mean a lot of different things to different people. That's always going to be contested. And that's always going to be sort of grounds for a conversation um, about what it means. So unlike some terms that are more precise, I think about organic, which was given some precision by the national organic law and the organic standards um, that give it some very precise meaning, or agroecology, which has been given some very precise meaning by, you know, massive social movement and a series of processes. I think about like the declaration of Nielani that really spells it out. You know, this is what agroecology is and isn't. I don't think regenerative is ever going to be that precise. I think its role in the conversation is precisely to be this big term that is contested. And so my choice to use it in this book and in the title of this book was about um, entering that conversation and and saying what I think regenerative should mean in order for it to accomplish its most ambitious goals. And when people use the word regenerative, uh, an aspect of it is always the acknowledgement that climate change is a really important contemporary social and ecological problem. And the word regenerative indicates an ambition that agriculture can be part of the solution to climate change rather than part of the problem. As we know, you know, a quarter to a third of greenhouse gas emissions currently are coming from the food system. So that's always a part of what people are talking about when they talk about regenerative. And I would say the kind of mainstream understanding of its meaning kind of clusters around, can we build up soil health through agricultural practices in ways that sequester carbon and actually draw it down out of the atmosphere. And then sometimes there's layers added onto that about other forms of regeneration, but I think it really came into the popular lexicon around that dream of soil carbon sequestration and agriculture going from a climate problem to climate solution. So that's all something I'm really deeply interested in, uh, you know, from that deepest origin of my work in agroecology and my grandmother and the Dust Bowl. Like, I am all about the idea of restoring soil health in a way that makes agriculture an environmental solution rather than an environmental problem. And I think there are deep potential social implications to that. And I think it's really important that we look at this in some historical context and actually go back further than the Dust Bowl, understand the you know, root causes of the Dust Bowl that include settler colonial occupation of Western Nebraska and other parts of this country, but really think about what is the 500-year process of extraction that the loss of carbon from soils is embedded in. And that 500-year process is colonization, you know, indigenous dispossession and genocide, the experience of enslavement, the way in which immigrant labor and the displacement of people from their own places where they had their own farms in order to serve industrial agriculture, that's the whole big extractive process that the extraction of soil carbon is a part of. And so to me, regeneration and regenerative agriculture means healing that whole extractive process. It means reckoning with and healing colonial processes. And I do think that agriculture in the food system has a key role to play in that 
because so much of the extraction happened at the site of agriculture in the food system on the land. And so I think that that healing process of repair needs to happen also on the site of agriculture in the land. We can't leave agriculture in the land out like that was just you know, the historical economy. And now we can just do cash transfers and that'll solve the problem. Like definitely we need social and ecological repair at the site of the food system. And Healing Grounds centers the stories of four women of color who are approaching regenerative agriculture from those lenses because that's the history of their communities. They experienced extraction and agriculture as extraction from their communities starting way back before the Dust Bowl. And so there's a vision of regeneration that is inclusive of everything that needs to happen in order to heal that extractive process. And so that's what I want to speak into the regenerative conversation. And at its most surface level, it's just take leadership from indigenous communities and communities of color. Even if you you maybe don't fully understand how profound that is, that's a really good starting point because those communities will lead us in a direction that's deeper. And then maybe another step is to understand why structurally that's a really different starting point for talking about regeneration than if you just got concerned about extractive agriculture recently because climate change is just starting to have an impact on your community, rather than understanding that the extraction that produced climate change from agriculture uh, was a problem you know, hundreds of years ago because it started to become a problem for your community, which was on the front lines hundreds of years ago. Absolutely. And I I definitely want to get into some of those stories of those four central characters that make up each of the chapters. First, to step back a little bit, I'd love for perhaps people that listeners that are not thinking as frequently and as deeply about the food system as you and I might be, could you paint a picture of what's often called the industrial food system, or we could perhaps we should call it the colonial food system that we have, particularly in the United States? although there are global dimensions as well. Yeah. So it's an, the, the way the food system is currently organized really has to do with, with profit and specifically financial capitalism. And that is a legacy of colonialism. Before we had the financial sector that we do now, we did have this kind of hierarchical global order with Europe at the center of it. And the whole idea of, of industrial agriculture is that there are certain places that are essentially sacrifice zones where raw commodities are grown and labor is exploited and is as cheap as possible. Possible. And the purpose of those places is to grow generally monocultures, you know, think the plantation model, but in various forms of some kind of raw product and export it as cheaply as possible to places that are then going to process it into foods that people eat. And over time, one of the objectives of that whole system was also to create cheap food for working people so that their wages could be kept low. And so the whole food system is kind of all about serving this sort of larger global capitalist order and not about, you know, how do we create sustainable lives in a place, whether you're thinking about the plants in the food system or the soil in the food system, or of course, the people in the food system. So it's very global, it's export oriented, and the purpose is cheap food. And it's been drawing on a, you know, non-renewable pool of resources for a long time, uh, you know, fossil fuel and soil organic matter without a real plan for how to replace those things. Yes, definitely. A sort of central argument, as you alluded to previously in Healing Grounds, is that this is not the only system that even currently exists. There are other systems that have existed and continue to exist at the margins of this globalized industrial food system. And maybe now's a good time to lead into what are some of those systems and why have they largely remained on the margins at this time when we're sort of so desperate for alternatives um, now that we are reckoning with climate change and structural racism and all those things? Yeah. So community food systems are are coexisting with this industrial food system. And those community food systems have a very different purpose, which is to, you know, meet the nutritional needs of people in the immediate area 
and to sustain the ecological base from which they spring, <laughs> which is to say, if somebody expects to be in the same place for a while and they're going to continue to feed their family from that land, you know, seven generations into the future, built into their food system is the idea that you have to put organic matter back so that you can continue to grow that food into the future. And you have to, uh, you know, basically make the land whole if you're taking something out of it um, and not just use up resources until it can't grow food anymore. <laughs> so there are all kinds of incredible community food systems, you know, all over the world in rural areas and urban areas that parallel this industrial food system and, you know, often hidden, often in the informal economy or not involving cash transfers at all. And one of the hallmarks, I think something agroecology understands about these kinds of community food systems is that ecologically, they mimic the structure of the natural environments around them. And so in a, you know, forested tropical place, you know, like much of Central and South America or Africa, you have these incredible agroforestry systems where people are growing food for their community in ways that honestly, to a lot of European observers are indistinguishable from the, you know, quote unquote, rainforest. <laughs> you know, so, you know, like the Mayan people developed the rainforest that they lived in to be majority human useful plants, you know, through generations and generations of selection and management. So it's just as functional for the non-human species as it was prior to, you know, human shaping of the environment for agriculture, but it's also useful to people. And so that kind of, you know, mimicking the natural ecosystems to create food systems, that's the hallmark of these agroecological and community food systems. And the reason that um, they're marginalized within a global capitalist economy is that their purpose is feeding people and taking care of the environment and not producing a bunch of profit. So who they're not useful to is agribusiness because they're not profit models. And in fact, they challenge the profit model of agribusiness because they don't use the stuff agribusiness produces. They don't use chemical fertilizer. They don't use chemical pesticides or herbicides or, you know, biocides of any kind. They don't use, you know, quote unquote, improved seeds. They have their own, you know, seed saving practices embedded within them. And so for all those reasons, it it ultimately kind of comes down to a power struggle about who the food system is for. One thing I think is so impressive about this book is it's, it is sort of centered in the U.S. and telling a story about U.S. agriculture, but it also is really a very global story because you are drawing on the agricultural traditions of not only indigenous communities, but Black and African diaspora communities, South American, Latin American communities, and Asian American communities. How did you decide to sort of bring all of these, what might initially seem to be disparate agricultural traditions together? And, and what was that process like of creating a cohesive narrative around regenerative agriculture for all of these stories? Yeah. Well, I was thinking about, you know, the regenerative agriculture movement in the U.S., which is, you know, sort of where I've been involved, where I was born and raised and where I've done all my work in this field. And I was thinking about, you know, this question that I've seen in, in a lot of scientific journal articles recently, which is how effective can regenerative agriculture really be at drawing down greenhouse gas emissions? I was seeing this really big gap between some, you know, commentaries in journals like Nature and PNAS and stuff like that that would say, oh man, like 5% of human-caused emissions at best we can offset through regenerative, maybe nothing. And so this is a distraction. We should focus on the energy sector. <laughs> that was one view. And then there was another view, which was, you know, like the four per mill study that came out of that big international team um, with a strong connection to the French government that said, Oh, yeah, you know, 20 to 35 percent of human caused emissions could be offset through, you know, building up soil carbon four tenths of a percent around the world, you know, including through regenerative agriculture. So there's this big gap basically between people who thought regenerative agriculture could be a really powerful climate solution and people who thought that, you know, it was marginal at best. And so I was thinking about this from the standpoint of the movement in the U.S. And I was thinking about, you know, who are the people within the U.S. US who are practicing it in a way that can meet those most ambitious goals. And that's where I came to 
oh, you know, it's people whose communities have been on the front lines of extractive agriculture for hundreds of years and for whom regenerative agriculture is, A, rooted in ancestral techniques that go back thousands of years in their communities, and B, has been continually refined as a strategy of survival and resistance in the face of extractive agriculture for, you know, at this point, centuries. And so, in the United States, you know, kind of thinking from frameworks that are set up, you know, through the ethnic studies movement in the 60s, the kind of really large heterogeneous communities I was thinking about were people who are indigenous to this continent already, people who are indigenous to the continent of Africa, and then also, you know, Latino, uh, which is a problematic category, <laughs> and Asian American, that all of those really large heterogeneous communities who have often, you know, united in order to sort of be heard, have had experiences of extractive agriculture and colonialism in different ways and have resisted through their own ancestral regenerative agriculture. And so, you know, I had already been seeing tons and tons of leaders you know, who come from these communities around me in the agroecology space. And uh, yeah, so I mean, honestly, the hard part was, you know, realizing you know, the way I write in narrative nonfiction, I feature just a few characters. So figuring out, you know, which are these stories that I'm really going to dig deep into as the as the kind of main featured voices in the book. Yeah. And so as you mentioned earlier, those characters seem really intentionally selected as the set of young women of color that are working in agriculture in various ways as researchers and scientists, but also farmers and leaders of nonprofits. How did you go about, I guess, first making, was that an intentional decision that those are the types of people you wanted to feature as the main characters? And then how did you go about finding and recruiting them and um, gaining their trust in order to tell their <laughs> stories so beautifully as you do in the book? The racial identity piece was very intentional and came from that sort of process of thinking through what is regeneration that we were just talking about. Gender and age were not intentional at all. <laughs> but it was interesting, at, you know, when I sort of got far enough along in the book where those, you know, the characters were kind of stable and I realized like, wow, um, young people and women are clearly playing a really important role in this process of regeneration. And so now I guess that's kind of an analytical question for me to reflect on <laughs> uh, because that's uh, a lot of who I found. And it was also, I have to say, very interesting as somebody whose entire career to this point has involved essentially interviewing my elders to be interviewing people, all of whom are younger than I am. And it's actually awesome as a person who teaches undergraduates. It really made me reflect on how am I going to take leadership from youth going forward? You know, that's what's ahead for me in my life. And it's exciting. <laughs> and then, you know, I got to talk to a lot of people for this book who shared insights and you know, the whole tapestry of the book is informed by dozens and dozens of people. Um, their names are in the acknowledgments. And so then thinking about, you know, these kind of featured voices, of course, you know, the first element was consent, you know, who's interested in um, collaborating with me in this way. And and then as I was learning more about histories of, you know, African diaspora agroforestry, for example, or Mesoamerican polyculture, I was also thinking about people whose personal stories intersect the histories of these large heterogeneous communities that they're a part of in ways that for a narrative writer offer opportunities for me to make those connections for people who are, I imagine most readers connect most strongly with a contemporary character who's living in the same time and place more or less as they are. And so those people become a guide to kind of walk you through history. And so I was thinking about whose experiences, I mean, like Aide Guzman, her uh, story as both a scientist and as a person, you know, raised in a farm worker family in the Central Valley intersects so much of the story of the encounter between U.S. industrial agriculture and Mexican-American society. It's just an incredible opportunity to kind of weave the present and the past together. And she herself talks about that. So she's already kind of prefiguring the narrative. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I would recommend anyone that reads the book, read the acknowledgments to and like look up all the incredible people that um, are part of your community that helped uh, bring this work 
to life because, um, yeah, it's a really all-star collection of agroecologists and other cool people. So, <laughs> yeah, I had an incredible amount of help with this project, and I, it was so informative for me. I learned so much along the way of this book. So I was I was the first to be taught <laughs> along the process. We've sort of touched already on the role of storytelling to you and how important that is in your own work and digging into the deep human stories behind these agricultural and environmental relationships. But also it seems to be a really common thread for a lot of the people that you interviewed for the book too. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you noticed these folks speaking about the role of storytelling and intergenerational knowledge in building their vision of regenerative agriculture. Yes, that's a good point, Ben, actually, that in so many ways, I was taking my cue as a narrative writer from the narrative constructions that the people featured in the book were already building, the sort of tapestries that they were already weaving of their own experience and of history and of science that um, are already really powerful in the world before I ever met them or you know asked if they wanted to collaborate with me on this book. In particular, I'm thinking about Latrice Tatsy, who is the featured voice in the first chapter. She's a member of the Blackfeet Nation um, in Northwest Montana. She is a proponent of buffalo restoration, and her family also has a cattle ranch, so that's really interesting. And she just finished a master's degree at Montana State University in land resources and environment. She was looking at how soil ecology shifted where bison had been reintroduced and she was comparing buffalo pastures and cattle pastures. So she has this really interesting perspective on the whole idea of regenerative grazing, which, you know, I often hear people talk about how we can better manage cattle if we're informed by the way that native herbivores use the land and we're in relationship with vegetation. But for Latrice, it's it's not just an abstract model. Those native herbivores, you know, in her language are called ini and they're relatives and they need to be restored back to the landscape as teachers, um, not in the abstract, but actually in physical form. And it's also all about how her people are reclaiming that relationship with buffalo and prairie and, and also fire, which is a tool that they used to build on the mosaic that the buffalo were building with the prairie, um, which stored a bunch of carbon, <laughs> but also was very important culturally and spiritually and at the heart of the food system. And one of the things that was so interesting about Latrice's work is that she's building on work that her dad did. And she talked about this. I mean, this was coming up every other sentence in our conversation because her dad went to work for Blackfeet Community College and started teaching some of the first classes around the whole idea of buffalo restoration and learning ecology through buffalo um, and land management practices through buffalo, which is, you know, historically how people in their community had, had learned a lot about ecology. So he was kind of bringing that back as this what Latrice calls it is cultural science. Um, and he was also really involved in what became the Blackfeet Buffalo program of bringing animals back to the land on the reservation. And then ultimately in this really cool, much more ambitious ENI initiative, which involves members of the whole Blackfoot Confederacy. So people on the northern side of the medicine line in Canada who are relatives of Blackfeet Nation people in Montana, and really thinking about restoring buffalo to the whole landscape that they were historically part of, you know, which goes way beyond the current reservation boundaries. So, so Latrice's work is all building on and in conversation with the work that her dad had been doing when she was a little girl. <laughs> and she also always talks about how this, what she's doing isn't for her, but it, she's thinking about like her kids' kids. And she sent me this amazing picture of her in the lab processing her soil samples. And she's with her three kids, you know, including this little girl who's like, under five at the time, <laughs> Bailey, her youngest daughter, but also her oldest daughter, Cassie, who was a, a teenager at the time, I think. And so it is extremely intergenerational work for her. And it's not just about, you know, what she learns in her research process in this present moment that she writes in a paper, but it's all about the kind of knowledge sharing over the generations. Um, and I think we talk about this in agroecology all the time, that it's knowledge intensive, 
you know, that the most important resource is the knowledge that people are carrying and it has to be in situ, you know, it can't be just like off somewhere in a seed bank. And I think Latrice's work just so clearly shows how people and, you know, especially indigenous people are at the center of these processes of ecological restoration. The story about the collaborative of indigenous communities across the U.S. and Canada trying to bring together land to have this buffalo herd that will be more like what once existed all across the continent is really fascinating and impressive to read about. But it also reminds me a lot of something you really focus on in the last chapter, the conclusion of the book, about how property relations and the legal structures around land are in many ways an impediment to the kinds of agriculture that these communities have historically practiced and would like to practice more of um, in the future, this more sort of communal ownership of land and the ability to, to, to not have the landscape divided up into these individual parcels so that you can actually manage a buffalo herd, for example. Um, mm. So I'd love to hear more about some of the work on that sort of land relations and property side of things that folks are doing to make regenerative agriculture, this sort of true, deeply rooted regenerative agriculture more possible. Yeah. So the book is is really hopeful. Uh, there's all these really positive stories. So it's like, wow, look at all this cool regenerative agriculture going on in the indigenous community. Wow, look at all this amazing regenerative agriculture going on throughout the Black diaspora. Oh my goodness, look at all these cool Mexican-American home gardens and all these amazing farms and polycultures. And Ida Guzman showed that they have two times as many arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi. And they're in the Central Valley, but they're going to like rebuild the land and that's amazing and wow like asian american you know regenerative traditions inform the whole organic movement and and then it's like oh and everybody we just met all the people in all those communities they own two percent of the agricultural land in the united states 98 percent of agricultural land in the united states is white owned and so no matter how excited you get about all of those regenerative agricultural traditions in all these different communities of color, it's really hard to imagine how that's going to scale out to the point that we're going to you know, solve climate change if people are trying to do this on 2% of the agricultural land in this country. That's insane. And obviously, there's historical reasons for that. It goes back to indigenous dispossession and genocide and not only enslavement, but then Jim Crow and sharecropping and, you know, discrimination of the USDA in their loans. And then all these ways in which agricultural labor was imported, but people were excluded from citizenship. And so they couldn't become landowners. And so there's all these historical reasons why 98% of agricultural land is white owned. And that, in my mind, is probably the biggest impediment to scaling out regenerative agriculture to really meaningfully tackle climate change. So that brings up the question of like, well, what do we do about it? I think there's some really important things we need to do about it in policy. Of course, the Farm Bill is coming up in 2023. So that's an opportunity. I have to say, I'm really excited about the transformative Farm Bill campaign that uh, over 170 organizations around the country just announced to basically say, like, no, we're not just going to ask for, you know, a few thousand more dollars in this title and this program. We actually want the whole bill to be written around a set of core values that include racial equity and climate action and justice for workers and all these things. And I think in terms of land justice, I think we really can take our cue from some exciting work that community organizations have been doing around this. And two that I profiled in that last chapter in the book are the Northeast Farmers of Color Land Trust, which is based in the Northeast, as you might imagine, <laughs> and Minnow, which is based in California. And they work similarly. They're land trusts that combine the community land trust model, which, of course, is about access. And maybe folks know about it from urban um you know, housing projects. So that was actually created by Black farmers, Charles and Shirley Sherrod, for this incredible, like, 5,700-acre community farm um, among Black farmers in Georgia in the late 60s. So it combines the community land trust model with the conservation land trust model, which, of course, is often used for wilderness conservation, but increasingly also to conserve agricultural land to prevent development. 
And so using that combination of things that say, you know, we are going to, quote unquote, encumber the title of land by requiring that it be ecologically sound in its management, but also provide access. They're going out and they're acquiring land. They're raising money. That's, you know, part of what a land trust does. But they're also thinking about how do we change the relationship between people and land from this imposed model of fee simple title and this idea of ownership, which really doesn't resonate in a lot of indigenous communities and communities of color, to actually move that relationship, that day-to-day relationship with the land towards something that looks more like land as a relative and we have a reciprocal relationship with it. And so they're also thinking about, you know, how do we do cultural access easements with indigenous communities that you know, are overlaid with, say, farmers of color getting access to land to build a community farm or a food hub. And so how can we think about land not just as something that you put a fence around and one person owns it, but how do we think about forms of access to land that that really respect relationships among lots of communities to that land, which is kind of where we're at at this point in the pluralistic United States where most people are in diaspora. Uh, and so Northeast Farmers of Color Land Trust and Minnow, I found both of them really inspiring in not only just trying to get access to agricultural land for communities of color and indigenous communities, since they only have 2% of it now, but also supporting people in moving that land relationship to something that feels more culturally resonant for them and away from this imposed model of just, you know, sort of private property rights. Speaking of policy and land as well, I, I was curious sort of personally also to ask you and chat with you about some recent policy provisions in the Inflation Reduction Act that the Mm -hmm. Biden administration passed. There's a lot of climate change stuff in there, and that includes agriculture. There was $40 billion dedicated mostly through existing programs like Conservation Stewardship Program, Conservation Reserve um, Program, and EQIP to do things that many people think of as regenerative practices or incentivize Mm -hmm. farmers to do those things like reducing tillage, adding cover crops, um, support for agroforestry. As someone who who just wrote this book on regenerative agriculture, what are your thoughts about these provisions and now going into the farm bill and beyond, what what are some additional changes you might like to see to federal policy? So I, I think these provisions are great. I think that's an important piece of the puzzle. And I think, you know, building the puzzle pieces around it will make it that much more impactful. <laughs> and so I think, you know, one of the things I think about is programs that are designed to help existing farmers and that are easier to access if you're not only the farmer, but the landowner, you know, they may entrench this divide between those who currently have access to being a farmer and those who may have incredible lineages of farming in their background, but don't have that access. And so I think in in terms of thinking about these kinds of programs that support people and implementing practices on their land, they definitely need to be paired with programs that ensure that people can get access to land in order to implement those kinds of things. And I think, you know, the devil is always in the details of how these things are implemented and what the, you know, grant application process looks like or what the process is to get access to the funds. Those things become really, really important in terms of who gets access and who doesn't. So those those things that public servants think about are really important <laughs> and also that kind of the watchdog organizations think about. I really appreciate the people who nerd out on the details of, hey, is this a, you know, 20 page application? Or is this something where you can make a phone call and somebody will come out and provide technical assistance and you can get the funds that way? You know, as far as going into the farm bill, kind of the full package of things I would like to see, I really loved there were seven core values that were outlined in this transformative farm bill campaign. This group of 170 organizations just sent a letter to President Biden about a week ago saying, you know, whatever we ultimately end up with for a farm bill. It needs to center racial equity, ending hunger, real action towards addressing climate change, access to nutritious and healthy food, you know, dignity and safety for workers. Uh, 20 million Americans work in the food system, like almost 10% of the people who are employed in this country. So it's a big labor bill, honestly, even though we don't usually think about it that way. And then also, you know, we need to think about 
antitrust, basically, um, you know, making sure that corporations aren't allowed to monopolize a whole sector of the food system and thinking about food safety in a reasonable way that doesn't impede agroecology, but is actually, um, you know, utilizing agroecology for its food safety benefits. You know, more diversity means you don't have one crazy organism that you don't like getting out of control. <laughs> so I think that's a really good set of priorities to be at the center of the farm bill. And I'd love to see a farm bill that reflects those values. And I will definitely be, um, you know, staying tuned as that campaign proceeds and the farm bill discussion continues through 2023. And, you know, who knows, sometimes it goes an extra year. So I'm here for the duration. <laughs> and I agree, those sound like excellent centering principles for the bill. Let's, we can hope that, um, yeah, we'll get some, some much needed transformative change. Yeah. And I think even just recognizing that the constituency for the farm bill is the whole country, you know, it's not just something that a handful of, you know, quote unquote, farm state legislators are to work out with a handful of, you know, powerful industry leaders. It really affects everybody. And of course, we all eat. Then you've got the 20 million people who work in the food system. And you think about like, you know, people's access to clean water and clean air and, of course, the climate, which affects all of us. So I think a big part is just changing the culture of the farm bill on the Hill to recognizing that this is a major piece of social legislation that needs to acknowledge the whole constituency. It's not just something that's like a specialty thing for the people who care about agriculture, you know, i.e. the people who already have access to making money in it. Totally. Yeah. And I mean, I've heard it said, it, and I agree, it's, it really shouldn't, the farm bill is a bit of a misnomer. It's really a food system bill because it also incorporates all the nutrition um, SNAP provisions and stuff like that, which are like the, the major expenditures in that bill are not actually to just growing stuff in fields, but feeding people all over the country. So Totally. And on top of that, in the next you know year or two, it may well be the biggest climate bill you know, that we have an opportunity to get engaged in. So yeah, I'm with you. It's bigger than its name would indicate. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. The last thing I sort of about the book or regenerative agriculture that I'm curious to hear your opinion about is this relationship between tradition and innovation in agriculture. And as you so eloquently show in the book, a lot of the concepts and practices that we associate with regenerative agriculture have these deep roots that go back hundreds or thousands of years in many communities. But does that necessarily mean that the future of agriculture should look exactly like the past of agriculture? And, and what room is there for technology or other types of innovation in creating more just and sustainable food systems? That's a great question. And I, I think it's a really great place for us to be landing here because I, I've heard a lot of times this kind of pitting of agroecology against technology. And I don't think they're actually in conflict at all. You know, certain kinds of technologies may come into conflict with agroecology, but that's not because of the technology itself. That's because of the power relations surrounding it typically and the kind of set of values and goals that are informing the way it's being used. So I used the word ancestral a lot in this book. And I don't think I, I hardly ever use the word traditional because tradition, even though honestly they could mean the same thing, but traditional is often perceived to mean replicating the past literally. <laughs> and I hear a lot of really brilliant farmers, you know, people I was talking to were using the word ancestral to mean informed by a deep process of learning and knowledge and sort of informed by the conceptual framework that has been developed over generations and generations, especially generations and generations in a place of understanding the relationships necessary to take care of that place for the long term. And so I think that ancestral knowledge really informs that framework and a sort of set of goals for how to pursue agriculture, as well as a lot of practical strategies, you know, like cover crops. That was happening in China 5,000 years ago, and it's still a good idea today. <laughs> uh, 
Um, and it's also based in this really deep principle, which is, you know, put back what you take out. That's a good principle. You know, there again, it was good 5,000 years ago. It's good now. And I think an ancestral approach means, you know, utilizing that conceptual knowledge and that knowledge that's been built up over generations and also community governance of a food system to inform how technologies are used as they're developed, as newer technologies are developed. I think a great example in the book is the way Latrice thinks about cattle, which is a new technology to the Blackfeet people <laughs> and was not developed by the Blackfeet people. It was, uh, you know, an animal that was you know, imposed through colonization on the North American continent. And yet in the hands of Blackfeet people who have this longstanding relationship with buffalo and this understanding of grazing and prairies, they have managed to incorporate this new technology called the cow and to inform it through this ancestral knowledge to become a regenerative part of an ecosystem. And so I think there's all kinds of opportunities in agroecology to do that and also to develop new technologies that are informed by these ancestral values. It's like, well, what do we need? Maybe we need tools that are fitted to people's bodies. Um, you know, that's something that comes up in this brilliant book, Zapotec Science, which talks about that particular focus on that particular technology, which is not something we typically see in industrial ag in the United States because workers are not valued in that way and their bodies aren't valued. And we don't assume that most people are going to be doing agricultural labor. We relegate that to people who, whose class position is being managed to be low. And so that focus of how do we develop tools that are ergonomically appropriate that's not a conversation in ag tech, but it would be, I think, if you know we were informed by those ancestral values of the Zapotec people who were designing those tools in Talea. So I think it's a question of what are the values and ideas and worldviews and power structures that are informing what kinds of technologies we need and how we should use them. And from that standpoint, I think we can do a lot with you know, what you're talking about as innovation. So the, your book, Healing Grounds, just re really recently came out in May, I think was the publication. I believe the audiobook is coming out this month. So that's exciting. Any did day you now. record the audiobook I yourself? I did. And I was so delighted to have the opportunity to do that. Cool. No pressure, I, but I am curious, what what are you looking at on the horizon? What are you getting excited about for either another book, or maybe it's not that big, maybe it's just something in your research or teaching, but um, yeah, what's, what's on the horizon for you? Yeah, well, it is a new school year, so I'm very excited. Um, I'm actually teaching an agroecology course for the first Yay. time this year. So I have been deep into, um, you know, slides and assigned podcasts and videos and stuff like that. <laughs> um, so I'm super excited for the new school year. I love working with undergraduates at UC Santa Barbara. Just really awesome crew. Um, so I know it's going to be reinvigorating and informative as it always is. I'm really excited about the 2023 Farm Bill and this transformative Farm Bill campaign. Um, that's definitely something I'm going to be paying a lot of attention to over the next you know, year plus here. And I am cautiously optimistic that this is the time that we're going to have a transformative Farm Bill because let's face it, it needs to be these things only come around every five years. And uh, certainly the folks writing the IPCC report would not encourage us to sit on our hands and wait for the next farm mill cycle. So I'm excited about that. And I'm also really excited about a project I've been working on with uh, my colleague, Nikki Mazzaroli, all about California silvopasture. We have been um, plugging along throughout the pandemic, and we've got these five short films that are being edited right now featuring uh, silvopasture producers in California, and they'll be accompanied by um, short written profiles. And um, we're also working on a journal article with our awesome colleague, Marcia Delange. Um, so really excited. All of that's going to come out in early 2023. And it's been really fascinating to learn about silvopasture systems. I haven't done a whole lot in agroforestry, and I also haven't done a whole lot in animal agriculture. So I've just been learning a lot. <laughs> yeah, that sounds really exciting. <clears throat> I will look forward to those things for sure. That's all of the main things I wanted to cover. But I also want to give you an opportunity to 
share anything else that you wanted to make sure got said? Yeah. Well, mostly just thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you so much for the invitation. And thank you so much for your amazing work. Yeah. Thank you for taking the time. This is great. Thanks, Ben. That was Ben Giuliano in conversation with Liz Carlisle. Ben Giuliano is EdgeFX's managing editor and a PhD candidate in the Department of Integrative Biology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Liz Carlisle is an assistant professor of environmental studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and author of three books, Lentil Underground, Grain by Grain, A Quest to Revive Ancient Wheat, Rural Jobs, and Healthy Food, along with Bob Quinn, and Healing Grounds, Climate, Justice, and the Deep Roots of Regenerative Farming. You've been listening to EdgeFX, a production of CHE, the Center for Culture, History, and Environment in the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by Ben Giuliano, Weishan Lu, and me, Rudy Molinick. The music you're hearing is by Julian Lynch. You can get all of our episodes sent straight to your computer or mobile device by subscribing to EdgeFX wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please leave us a rating and review, or tell a friend about it. That really helps connect us with new listeners. You can follow us on Twitter, at EdgeFXMag. And, as always, you can keep up with the steady flow of great content about cultural and environmental change across the full sweep of human history at edgeeffects.net. <laughs>